Monday. It is lovely to uh, be with you all. Again, my name is Emily Lamb. I'm coming at you live from WRGW. Um, this is our second to last episode of the season. Very exciting. We are almost at the finish line. Um, hope you all are having a great time studying for finals and getting ready uh, kind of to, to wrap up the end of the year. So with all that being said, we've got a very exciting episode today. Um, uh, all three of my interns are going to be doing a story for you guys, so it's going to be really exciting. Um, we've got Grace, who's going to be doing a COVID update. Uh, we've got Ethan, who's going to be talking about the averted um, government shutdown once again, basically as many um, averted shutdowns in as many months. Um, and then we got Preston talking about um, inflation, what all that means. And then I'm going to come back on the end. We're going to talk about um, recent Supreme Court cases. And we're going to talk about a couple other stories if we have time there at the end of the episode. Inflation is a problem with the current inflation level being 6% as COVID's impact on supply chains continue. Anything manufactured is in short supply. With demand for home goods spiking, ports are struggling to keep up. No one knows when the crisis will end, as bottlenecks do not appear to be going away. From the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., this is Preston Schiller. Basic economics teaches us that government spending, high levels of debt compared to GDP, hoarding, and printing money to cover debts leads to inflation and shortages. And that's very much clear right now. If you like, take a look around you, the government's spending a lot of money, the debt compared to GDP is enormous, and they're printing money to cover those debts. And inflation is going up and there are shortages. And regardless of the party, the, the president has to be held responsible. If, if it was under Trump, I would blame him. Right now it's under the Democratic Party with Biden, and the buck stops the president. You can't not blame who's in office. And after for months, the current administration, they've, they've been calling this inflation transitory. They're finally walking that back now, but they're, they're very late to the game. So what, what they did is, by sending out all those stimulus checks, they overheated the economy. Now the government has to act. They have to stabilize the economy to prevent hyperinflation, which it's, it's not going to be a fun situation to try to correct that. The only what thing the government could really do to stop the inflation is to implement austerity measures. Basically, what the government has to do is they have to temporarily reduce public spending and temporarily increase taxes and then use that money to pay off the debt, which will stabilize demand. Right now, the current situation is that our economy is pretty much self-sustaining, demands at normal levels, but there's a low willingness to work in person, which is slowing progress in the labor market and intensifying supply chain disruptions. Also, as prices rise in the economy, workers are going to demand higher wages, and that's going to make their employers have to raise prices, and it kind of like makes a wage price spiral, and it keeps on like going out of control, prices go up, wages go up, and it keeps, it's a vicious cycle, and you, you, you gotta stop that. You can't let it get out of control. Inflation is a really serious problem if it's persistent. Right now, rising food and energy costs are causing hardworking Americans to have their life savings, like, disappear. The value of it is just vanishing. And without any action, 
inflation will eliminate the value of the dollar, which would cause a collapse of the world economy. So you have to make sure inflation doesn't get out of control. It's imperative. Right now, the current inflation level is about 6%. It's a little above, but that's, it's a big problem. It's the highest rate in 30 years, and it's going up. It's to the point where all of the wage gains that's happened over the past year don't mean anything. Actually, if you look at what people are earning compared to what they had last year, if you adjust the prices, people are making 1.6% less than they did last year. It's matching the inflation of the 70s. It's like, yes, the number is lower than the 70s, but they use different ways to measure inflation. So if you use the measures of inflation they had in the 70s, inflation would be above 10%. So it, the economy is not in good shape right now. One of the biggest reasons why inflation is happening is the whole issue with supply chains. The previous shutdowns of factories and scaling back of shipping schedules due to the coronavirus created a scarcity for goods that then led to price increases. And that, like, going back to higher prices results in people requiring higher wages in order to maintain the same standard of living. Then, when people got back to work, there was a surge of goods. Basically, because there was a massive surge, the logistical capabilities of the world, like the ports, the, like the trucking, the trains, all that stuff that moves things from one place to another... They, they were overloaded. So what happened is that both the transport of raw materials to factories was slow, so factories had trouble making things, and a shortage of shipping containers, because they didn't have enough shipping containers to get stuff for people, prevent the finished goods from going out to stores. Not to mention that there was a massive traffic jam that started. It's still going on today. Like Boats are waiting outside of ports because the, the ports can't move fast enough. It's like that the influx of ships is overwhelming our like capacity. And this whole logistical nightmare that's going on right now is it's exacerbated by the imbalances in the energy market. Another big problem when like going back to how like high levels of debt compared to GDP and the printing of money really fuels inflation. The Federal Reserve purchases of Treasury debt has funded up to 80% of the entire government borrowing requirement. It's, it's not sustainable. Like it's, right now, it's $9 trillion, and it continues to grow by more than $100 billion every month. Before the pandemic, the balance sheet barely, like the total balance sheet barely exceeded $2 trillion. Like that's if you don't include the financial crisis, but that was extenuating circumstances. But like, it never really went above two trillion, and right now we're at nine trillion, and it's growing by a hundred billion every month. So, like the Fed's core mission, like their number one job, is to ensure stable prices and a sound currency through the tools it has at its disposal. So, like with the bonds that they're they're buying, like the that that's that nine trillion, they luckily they've announced a scale back of fifteen billion a month, but that leaves us continuing to accrue debt all the way until the end of June 2022. Because the 
labor market is like naturally recovering, the Fed has to end its bond purchases by the end of March. Like that's all the time they really should take. Like if inflation is to get under control, the Fed has to act quickly and decisively. They can't just wait around because that that's going to more inflation is going to keep on happening. Additionally, like interest rates are something that also have to change. It's like since the beginning of the pandemic, interest rates have been like basically zero. They're like slightly above, but they're essentially zero. And with inflation going up, a, a major tool that you have to control inflation, like one of the biggest things that you can do is increase in, in is increase the interest rate. So we got to do is we got to start at a 4% interest rate right now. And then we then you kind of wait to see what happens. And then you increase the interest rate as needed until inflation's about between two to three percent a year. That's the level that you want as a country. It's it's like the stable amount, kind of keeps the economy going, keeps people buying things, but not too much that their savings are not really being taken away. Basically all these policies that are going to get inflation under control, they're not going to be fun because when you get inflation under control, you're basically bringing down demand. So they are going to raise the unemployment rate and it's it's not going to be fun but it you have to stabilize the currency because if the value of the dollar disappears that is a much bigger problem than a temporary um slowdown of the economy earlier this year the government had a great opportunity to pass things that would have helped like the stuff in the original infrastructure bill and the original families plan, there was a lot of great things that they could have spent money on. But then by putting the, the stimulus checks in the economy, what they, they basically doused the economy in gasoline and threw a match on it. That's, it was like, it was one of the worst like things that the government could have done. They should have spent the money on things that would have expanded the potential GDP and not just kind of, overheat the economy. I was really optimistic about the current administration when they took office, but th they let me down and you have to hold whoever's in charge accountable. You cannot be partisan. There's too much partisanship in this country. You got to call balls as balls. You got to call strikes as strikes. I've enjoyed talking to you for the past 10 minutes. All right. Thank you so much to Preston for sending that in. Um, something I, I've appreciated about having interns this semester um, is that they have had a lot of interests that have been a little bit different than mine. And I have never been able to get myself to like sit down and focus on all those economic issues. So I do appreciate Pre Preston's um, interest in all of that and his very succinct explanation of kind of why we're in the place that we are. Um, Definitely. I, I mean, you know, his, his conversation about the stimulus checks, I think, is very interesting. And there was definitely conversation back when when that legislation was pat was was getting through Congress um, where people were saying, oh, this is going to overheat the economy. This isn't going to be good. Um, and of course, like everyone knew that it was going to it was going to cause some short term temporary inflation. But it is interesting to see kind of how all of those different policies have positive and negative ramifications. I, I would argue that we did need the stimulus checks when we um, had them, but then again, it does kind of, it is interesting to see how those economic policies and how those economic theories work in theory again, and then how they actually end up panning out in practice. Um, so again, thank you to all of my interns for coming in and doing their stories this week. They'll be back next week again for our 
season finale, which is pretty crazy. We're already at the end of the semester. But we've got some time left, um, and I'm going to talk about some of my own stories that I thought were particularly interesting and important um, this week. So the two big big stories that I'm going to talk about, um, one is the Dobbs versus Jackson Supreme Court case that's been very widely in the news over the past week. Um, then we're going to talk um, briefly about the school shooting that happened um, this past week in Michigan. And then we're going to wrap it up with a slightly more interesting and lighthearted story, because uh, the next... <laughs> the next 15 to 20 minutes are not going to be lighthearted. I will just warn you about that now. I was taking my notes uh, for these stories and I was just getting so frustrated. So if I appear angry in the next 20 minutes, it's because I am. Uh, and it's it's because this is just such an important topic. Um, and anyway, there's a reason I'm going to be frustrated. And I think personally, it's a good reason. So anyway, so again, the first thing I want to talk about is the um, kind of the Dobbs um, Supreme Court case. And so this was a case that went to the Supreme Court last week. I believe it was Monday last week. Um, so I didn't, obviously we didn't talk about it last week because it was still ongoing. Um, and basically it, the argument, um, the, the main question of this case is arguing whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. So the in Mississippi, there was a law that prohibits all abortions um, after 15 weeks. And 15 weeks is kind of within that like viability period. And so Jackson Women's Health Organization is the only licensed abortion facility in Mississippi. One of the doctors basically sued the state for the law and said that it was unconstitutional to have this law on the books. Um, and then the case obviously went all the way to the Supreme Court. And here we are now. Um, and basically the the well, the, the first thing right off the bat, number one, is only one one this is the thing that just shocked me immediately as soon as I started doing any research. There is one single licensed abortion facility in the entire state of Mississippi. Just pause, think about that for one second. And it's just, it's just absolutely insane. You know, because the, the, the big consequence of this Supreme Court case is that it has the potential to completely reverse Roe v. Wade, uh, which obviously is the kind of landmark Supreme Court case that um, kind of put abortion into the right to privacy provision that is kind of a, a major precedence of the Supreme Court. Um, but there's been so much that's happened over the past 30 or so years uh, since Roe um, was decided that has just made abortion less and less accessible. And one of those things that they did was was allow there to be only one licensed abortion facility in an entire state. You can't say that abortion is is legal in the state of Mississippi when there's only one place in the entire state that you can go. And Mississippi is a fairly large state, at least geographically. Anyway, a tangent to start off this conversation, but I still think it's very important um, to just acknowledge the the just the extreme importance of the fact that Jackson Women's Health Organization is the only facility that you can legally go and get an abortion in the state of Mississippi. Um, so again, this was basically all of the, the pundits are saying that this is this is the case that will either completely enshrine Roe v. Wade or will completely overturn it. And there have been threats of overturning Roe for years, basically as soon as it was decided. Um, but this is like the most tangible at least in my knowledge, this is the most tangible um, kind of time that they that the Republicans and pro-life activists really have to um, make this actually happen. And so as a reminder, if you're were under a rock for the past five years, 
former President Trump, uh, was able to appoint three conservative pro-life judges during his four-year term, which drastically changed the balance of the court for a very, very long time. Um, So he um, appointed Gorsuch, um, Kavanaugh, and then Coney Barrett um, in in his four-year term, which is just absolutely insane because, again, as I'm sure you all know, um, Supreme Court justices have lifetime appointments. So he basically permanently shifted the balance of the Supreme Court and basically anything, at least for the next however many years, um, it, it's basically completely shifted the, the um, again, the balance of the court for a long time. So this is, this is the first chance they have where they have this huge, like almost super majority in the court in order to, to overturn Roe v. Wade, which is this kind of this major, again, enshrined precedence in, in the court. Um, and the other significant thing there is that overturning Roe won't just make abortion legal in Mississippi, but it's going to um, basically trigger all of these different laws in different, mostly southern conservative states um, to, to basically just kick in those anti-abortion laws kind of all, all over the place. So, you know, people are saying, oh, well, you know, just overturning Roe, like it's only going to affect that one case. Like, no, it's going to have this really strong uh, kind of ripple effect throughout the entire country. Um, and the, 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 the thing that's, I mean, look, there are so many things here that are frustrating, just about a million things here that are frustrating. Number one, the, the thing that's frustrating about this case, because we know, obviously we don't have a decision yet, but we know based on the lines of questioning, we know based on the balance of the court, we know that we kind of know the way all those new judges are going to vote because abortion is the litmus test for conservative judges. You're not going to appoint a conservative judge um, that isn't pro-life um, or rather pro-birth, um, just because that's that is the rule in um, for Republicans. Um, so number one, this is not going to stop abortion for rich people, uh, but it's going to increase the risk of unsafe abortions and maternal mortality for lower income people. Um, and because rich people can go drive across the border, they can they can take a week off from work and go drive to New Jersey to get an abortion, uh, whereas lower income people aren't going to be able to have the resources to go to a state or go to a place um, where they can receive that adequate medical attention. Number two, kind of beyond all the conversations, just the general conversations that we don't even really need to get into about women having the right to control their own bodies and not have their bodies be legislated by a bunch of old white men. Um, overturning Roe will be a major change in legal precedence because it'll kind of throw the entire principle of the right to privacy kind of into question. Um, and there's so many different important kind of social justice issues and civil rights issues that are currently kind of being protected by the right to privacy, including Loving versus Virginia, which allows for interracial marriage, um, Obergefell v. Hayes, which um, uh, allows same-sex marriage, just all these different cases. So if Roe gets overturned, it opens the door for all of these other important right to privacy cases to be overturned. And you might be saying, and I hear, I hear people saying this to me right now, don't be dramatic, like that's crazy, no one's gonna overturn the provision or the Supreme Court case that allows that like legalizes interracial marriage. But who knows, you know, because people have been saying for years, oh, it's crazy to think that people are going to completely overturn Roe v. Wade. Like that's really not going to happen. Like there's just no chance of that. And here we are. Um, Additionally, 
there's implications um, in this court case for um, access to birth control, for um, access to IVF treatments and different fertility, um, different fertility projects and things like that. So not only is it going to affect people who want to have abortions, it's going to affect um, reproductive health care overall. It's kind of, again, it has this ripple effect that is going to just travel to a bunch of different states and a bunch of different places, and it's just going to make being a person who can reproduce a, a lot more dangerous and a, and a lot more uncertain. Um, and obviously, I mean, I'm, I'm not the first person to say this. I'm hardly the first person to say this, but I really am frustrated, again, by a bunch of old white men saying what we can or cannot do with our bodies um, when it truly has nothing to do with them. And the the main issue, the crux of this is that people who are quote unquote pro-life in general, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but I'm allowed because this is my radio show and I'm frustrated. Um, generally, people who are pro-life aren't really pro-life, they're pro-birth, right? All there's all these pro-life activists who are shouting about abortion, but they're not causing any kind of noise when a kid who is given a gun by his parents goes to school and kills four people. Nobody is saying, no, none of those pro-lifers are saying down with the NRA, uh, you know, we need to implement strong gun control, we need to keep our, keep our children's lives safe. Because as soon as the, the, the baby comes out of the womb, these pro-lifers do not care what happens to the child, right? And if these Republicans, generally, again, blah, 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 if these, these pro-life Republicans did genuinely care about what happened to the baby after it was born, they would not have voted no on Build Back Better, which provides for universal pre-K and would have provided for paid family leave and adequate maternal health care. And they would have, so they would support legislation that helps a child be safe and healthy from the time they're born to the time they die. They would be in support of a social safety net because if they're genuinely pro-life, then they want people to live with a, with, a, with, a, with a good quality of life as opposed to just being born out into the world and saying, like, best of luck, have fun, go off, like, do, do your best with the extremely limited resources available to you. Anyway, it's nonsense and it makes me crazy um, because it's just this, you know, it's uh, the, the people who are pro-birth are so, they think they're so much better <laughs> because they, like, have this strong... Um, you know, they're, they're like, we, we believe in the sanctity of human life. But do they really? Do they really believe in the sanctity of human life? Or do they care about pushing their values on other people? Um, and it's, it's also the conversation about, oh, well, don't, don't have uh, an abortion. Like, a, like, put your baby up for adoption instead. Like, let's talk about the abortion system, or the abortion, the adoption system in this country. And then beyond that, Let's talk about how those um, women are going to be safe and protected and provided good health, good adequate maternal health care during the time that they are pregnant, right? If you're not guaranteeing the fact that they are going to be safe and healthy throughout the term of their pregnancy, which is nine months, that's an amazing amount of time, plus their postpartum care, um, plus making sure that that child is actually taken care of in the um, adoption system and isn't kind of just being sent into, you know, like evangelical households and then that's that. You know, there's just so much more to the social safety net 
uh, again, that that's providing protections to all of those. There's so many different factors in a, a woman becoming pregnant and giving birth and, and all of that stuff. And I just think that <sighs> these pro-birth activists, I just, I just don't understand. I just don't personally understand their arguments. I understand that they do have arguments. I just don't personally quite gauge how they make sense kind of empirically. But I'm sure anyone who wants to debate me can debate me. This is a very contentious issue, and I know that I have very strong feelings, as you can tell. Um, but I think this kind of just jumps right into the next the next thing I want to talk about, which, of course, is the, the school shooting that happened this past week in um, Michigan. A 15-year-old student killed four students, uh, makes it the deadliest school shooting at a U.S. K-12 school since May 2018, which is pretty interesting considering the fact that the last basically two years have been online. Um, so there was not as much opportunity for those kind of mass shootings to happen. Um, but the if you haven't been paying attention to the story, it's truly horrifying, actually, um, because we have just seen over and over again, there's just been more and more information coming out that this shooting was entirely preventable. From top to bottom, it was a preventable thing that did not have to happen. There was a million signs and it was just, it was ignored by parents. I think, um, based, you know, based, I, I'll post links and resources as always, but um, uh, there were, the teachers and counselors, I think, did the best that they could under the kind of the, the the resources available to them but the issue was that parent the the, the parents of the of the um accused um because of course he's not convicted yet but the suspect at least um just absolutely blew it off and just moved away from it um on monday the day before the shooting a teacher saw him looking at like ammunition on his phone in class which resulted with a meeting uh, with counselor and other staff and uh, the mother texted him and said, quote, LOL, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn how to not get caught. On Tuesday, teacher alerted counselors and the date of students to, quote, concerning drawings and written statements, which again resulted in another meeting with parents. Um, and they said to the parents that you have to, he has to go seek counseling within 48 hours or they're going to call Child Protective Services. Um, the parents refused and like basically went back to work and they sent the, the teachers and the counselors sent the kid back to class, um, which is when the shooting happened. Um, and so he's being charged with um, terrorism and first degree murder. And the parents are also being charged um, with involuntary manslaughter because they gave him the gun. And then they also, at least in my opinion, generally seem to be very complicit about the whole thing. Um, and the question is, of course, in terms of the like the legal responsibility on behalf of the parents, what, were they actually complicit? Were they um, allies? Did they help him do it in any way? Or are they just bad parents? And of course, it's not a crime to be a bad parent, but it is a crime to kind of encourage your child to go shoot up their school. Um, I can't say that for certainty, but I'm going to gonna make the argument that that is against the law. Um, and so there's so much there with this story. There is just a million things to talk about just in terms of the fact that we're so desensitized um, to these shootings. I know for, for me, I have been 
hearing about school shooting stories since uh, since I could remember. And at this point, I see the notification on my phone and it just doesn't even register anymore, um, which is really upsetting and really frustrating. And really, it just the, the, the fact that we have not been able to pass any kind of legislation that's been truly and honestly aimed at getting rid of guns, getting them off our streets, making it harder for people to get guns and making it harder for the guns to fall into the hands of the wrong people. Um, and that includes also um, making sure that there is adequate mental health care and there's adequate resources in schools for for students. I just think there's so many things that are preventable with all of these cases. And there's just absolutely that's there's nothing that's been done over the past 15 years. Um, and of course, much longer than that since Columbine was in the 90s. Um, but since the, the kind of the recent like extreme uptick in cases, um, there just really hasn't been anything that's been done. And that's extremely frustrating. And uh, we're just going to continue kind of with this, <laughs> this same pattern of things over and over again. Not to be a not to be a Debbie Downer or anything on this fine um, Monday morning at 6.50 p.m. Um, but yeah. I think there's just, there's a lot of things going on in the world, um, and hopefully we do end up seeing some things change. But with that, a little bit of a frustrating rant there, I'm sorry, um, but I did need to get that off my chest, and, and, I, and I hope that um, if you were listening and you were screaming along in agreement with me, that was therapeutic. If you were screaming and you disagree with me, I hope it was also therapeutic, etc. But with that, I'm gonna I'm gonna end with my kind of light story uh, <laughs> at the end at the end of this episode. Um, so if you are on Twitter this week, you will probably have seen, or at least if you're on my side of Twitter, if you're on the political crazy side of Twitter, um, you'll have seen that Fox News aired a clip um, in which they were talking about the current Santa shortage. So this goes right back into Preston and Ethan and Grace's stories about the economy. Um, there's a 10% decrease in available Santas, despite the fact that there's more than 100% de- uh, increase in demand for Santas. There is a Santa shortage. It's the end of the world, guys. It's truly the end of the world. There's not enough Santas to go around. Um, and this clip is so funny. They quite literally had an elf um, come on and talk about the Santa shortage. And this all would have been very fun and goofy and maybe they're making fun of themselves a little bit and they're, you know, it's it's the holiday season, so they're connecting, you know, the supply chain shortages with Christmas and blah, 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 blah. Except for the fact that a the GOP War Room YouTube account took the clip and posted it with the caption, <clears throat> Fox News reported on the President Joe Biden Santa shortage affecting Americans this Christmas. It's, it's Joe Biden's fault that there's not enough Santas. Uh, it's Joe Biden's fault that there's not enough Santas. If I were Joe Biden and I saw this clip, I truly and honestly would um, dress up as Santa myself and be like, I-, I will come and be Santa at your events because I don't want to be held responsible for the fact that there's not enough Santas to go around. Um, even though it's only a 10% decrease which is like really isn't that 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 substantial of a decrease but it's more in terms of the increased demand um i guess joe biden really maybe you know what here's here's the play if if chuck schumer is listening in or if joe biden is listening into the show right now first of all 
send me an email, give me an internship. Um, and second of all, add, add a provision, add an amendment to Build Back Better to uh, increase funding for Santa school. And then maybe you'll get enough Republican support that you don't need cinema or mansion to, to vote yes on the bill. Maybe you can recruit a couple of Republican votes through um, increasing funding to Santa school. I think that that might be a big ticket. I think I might have just solved the problem. I think we're going to get Build Back Better passed before Christmas. I, I did it, guys. This is so exciting. But with that, uh, that is all I want to talk about today. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Very glad to be back here with you guys. Um, we have one more episode left this season. Woohoo! Um, so next week, we're going to be doing a little bit of a semester in review. All my interns are going to be coming back. We're going to be talking about kind of some of the main themes from the past six or so months. Uh, talk about all the different important things that have been happening in the world. Um, I also am going to encourage you guys to call into the show. So hopefully I can get that technology to work. Call into the show. So follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Again, on Instagram, it's at Cheap Thrills Radio. And on Twitter, it's at Cheap Thrills GW. I'm going to be posting the phone number there, as well as, of course, sources and everything from this episode. So hopefully, if you guys really disagreed with anything that I said this week, you guys can call in and debate me next week. Um, and we're going to be talking about some of those big, big stories from the past semester and talk about how that informs where we're going in the spring once we, once we get back from our Christmas break. But with that, I hope you all have an amazing week, last week of classes, and you all are um, going to have a great final season. Um, but have a great rest of your day, and I will talk to you later.